Hi, everyone, and welcome to She Talks Law, a Nixon Peabody podcast by women for women. On this podcast, we share legal knowledge and industry insights, empower one another, and talk about the journey from I wish I could to I did it. I'm your host, Jen Javesky, and today I'm joined by Nixon Peabody partner, Hannah Bornstein, and Shannon Cosentino Rausch, Chief Strategy Officer of Finless Foods. Today, the three of us are going to discuss something very interesting to me and very exciting. So for those who are plant-based or health food-based, listen up. We're going to talk about the importance of sustainability, food innovation, the legal and regulatory issues that come up with working within a brand new industry, and educating the regulatory agencies and each other on bringing new products to market. So welcome, Hannah and Shannon. So excited to have you here today. I'm your host and an attorney in Nixon Peabody's M&A and Corporate Transactions Group. I've had the wonderful privilege of being mentored by some of the best and brightest women in business and in law, and I want to share those tools with other women as they re-enter and even reinvent themselves in this new post-pandemic normal. Before we begin our conversation today, I want to briefly introduce our guests. Hannah Bornstein is a partner, a litigator, trusted advisor, and the deputy practice group leader for Nixon Peabody's Government Investigations and White Collar Defense, and a member of the firm's life sciences team. Hannah is also experienced in the healthcare industry matters involving the False Claims Act, the Food, Drug, and Cosmetic Act, and the Anti-Kickback Statute. Hannah regularly counsels life sciences companies through a range of FDA compliance, enforcement, and litigation matters. Hi, Hannah. Thank you for joining. Hi. Nice to be here. Thank you for having me. Shannon Cosentino-Rausch is the Chief Strategy Officer at Finless Foods. Having worked on sustainable fisheries and ocean policy, both nationally and internationally, she prides herself on being an intuitive and innovative policy strategist. Shannon holds a bachelor's in political science from Santa Clara University and her Juris Doctorate and Master of Environmental Law and Policy from Vermont Law School. Her studies centered around her passion for creating international policies and systems to ensure a healthy, thriving ocean. So thank you very, very much, uh, Shannon and Hannah, for joining me today. I really appreciate having you both here. Hannah, can you introduce yourself and describe a little bit more about what your day-to-day looks like and about what your work looks like here at Nixon Peabody? Sure. Uh, So I am a partner in our Boston office of Nixon Peabody, and I am housed in our government investigations and white-collar practice group. And uh, I'm not always the person everybody necessarily wants to be on the phone with if they're seeking advice, because sometimes that means there's a problem um, of rather large magnitude that needs to be dealt with. Um, I started practicing law in 2007 and quickly became drawn to the practice of white collar. And uh, really for most of my career, I've practiced in the life sciences space. Um, I primarily have represented uh, pharmaceutical, medical device, biotech companies uh, in the course of government investigations. It's a very regulated space. And in the past few years, I've been growing um, what has also become an FDA compliance regulatory component of my practice. And having spent so many years helping companies when there are problems, um, I've taken that experience and translated it to helping companies on the front end try to avoid um, problems that can come up with regulators. So um, my practice uh, spans Uh, food and drugs and devices. Day-to-day look at my practice. Um, You know, I just finished a call um, helping guide a a client through an investor call and the, you know, the investors had some regulatory, FDA regulatory diligence questions. So I help guide clients through deals and transactions where there's FDA regulatory questions and I do it on both the buy and sell side. So sometimes, you know, representing a company that's being invested in or being sold. Um, I also do it for investors looking to um, invest or purchase a company um, and helping them assess um, a variety of different um, FDA related questions. Then there's kind of the regular compliance sort of non-deal related work that I do um, it can range from a, a host of issues that come up, but uh, a lot of 
um, questions I've gotten in the past couple of years relate to product approval pathways. And there's some, some spaces that are very gray, um, you know, like uh, laboratory developed tests are one of those um, dietary supplements can be one of those. Digital health is another huge area where there's just a lot of gray in terms of whether something's regulated or needs pre-market review by the FDA. Um, and then I have a pretty robust enforcement and litigation components to my practice. And so, you know, that can involve, you know, cases that can take years um, to resolve, responding to subpoenas from the government, um, litigating false claims act matters. Um, so it's a really varied practice and um, I like it because you really have to learn the science behind the drug or the device or the food product, um, and you, you really get to see uh, up close, um, you know, a lot of the innovation that's happening, um, you know, what, where the science is going, where the thought leadership is, and, um, you know, there's just some really tremendously talented, bright people, and you get to <laughs> find, that you find yourself um, speaking with and learning from, so, um, it definitely is a practice that gets me out of bed every day, excited to, to help people and um, you know, bring products to market in a way that is compliant and safe and um, you know, will be a positive impact for our community. So that is a bit of a nutshell of my practice. <laughs> and how rewarding, though, to be able to be involved in that stage of, of your client's journeys, you know, to jump in and be able to assist them along in the very beginning stages, probably when it's a little bit scary or perhaps even the most scary time of, of a business's life cycle. So that's, that's really interesting. Shannon, I want to chat with you to get a little bit of background about you. If you could introduce yourself to our listeners and tell us about your career journey and how you landed at Finless Foods. Yeah, thank you. I, I also have to say, I already have like 10 topics, Hannah and I can chat about because <laughs> the podcast, you don't see that I'm nodding and shaking my head, but definitely was answering <laughs> your questions. Um, yeah. And I think you, you did such a great job with my background. I think I might just dive into some of the more personal aspects so that it's a little bit more interesting. I actually, I'm finding that I may be one of the rare of, of the folks who go to law school and that I went to law school with a very specific purpose. I, I didn't wake up one day and decide, like, I'm not sure what I want to do, but I know I want to be in law and I'll, I'll figure out the specialty later. Um, I actually only went to law school because there was a very specific thing I wanted to do. Um, I grew up in a very cliche, you know, description. I grew up near the coast in California and I grew up very close specifically to the Monterey Bay Aquarium. And my father is really passionate about the ocean, I actually grew up with a mentor that was a lifelong tuna fisherman commercially. And so he would take me to the Monterey Bay Aquarium probably since I was very, very small. Um, and we went regularly. And so very, very early on, I was learning about the policy issues around ocean conservation, really specifically around fisheries. And I guess to add some context to that, um, the, the Monterey Bay area, um, maybe the most of the coast of California had a lot of fisheries history, right? There was a lot of canneries and there was fleets that were based out of California. Even some of the, the first and largest tuna fishery fleets are based out of California. And so even just going to the aquarium, you learn a lot about the history of fisheries and managing fisheries and what happens when you don't manage fisheries, uh, the interactions with marine mammals and what can happen if you don't manage that. And so I got really passionate about it, uh, probably as a 10 year old, which is maybe not, you know, not uh, commonplace um, and specifically got really passionate about the international issues um, because obviously the oceans are commons, right? There's not a dividing line. It just, it flows and, and it's a challenge for us to figure out how do we manage things geopolitically. And I found this super fascinating. And so I already was studying this in undergrad and did, did projects on the topics. I did some sea turtle work in, in Mexico in undergrad, and I already was drawn to the, the like legal issues when the rest of my other fellow classmates were, were scientists. And so I knew I wanted to go to law school specifically to work on international fisheries. Um, I think I thought I wanted to be a treaty negotiator, 
Uh, and I think I thought that throughout law school. And so I took many, as many classes as I could on environmental law, ocean and coastal law, which is a very um, specific subspecialty and also in, on international. So not even just international environmental law, but even like WTO and trade law. And so my career has basically carried me throughout following this, this passion. I've worn many hats. I started out in the US government in this really niche fellowship program, but in the ocean space is super well known in that you have to get nominated by your state and you have to then go through a funnel process in, in the DC kind of office and out pops at the end, like 30 of maybe our best and brightest in ocean and you get placed within the US government in different um, agencies. So I was there for two, two plus years. And then I worked abroad in international development. So doing a lot of like UN and EU projects, largely in Africa. Um, I came back to the US, I think always chasing impact and worked more in the US NGO space. Um, and I got, this is, you know, this is why you need to know the personal story. My, my husband, my partner at the time, was an industrial or is an industrial designer. And so he was telling me about all these innovations um, that were related to ocean. Like Parlay was trying to use ocean plastic to create Adidas running shoes. And there was all these efforts that I wasn't even hearing about in the ocean space. And so I got really passionate about ocean innovation. And I think also working at the international policy level can maybe leave you a little jaded. You know, you're talking about really high level things. You're negotiating commas. You're wondering, are we really going to do this fast enough to get to the root of the challenges? And so I think I was, I was like, maybe innovation. I'm going to try that. So when I moved back to the Bay Area where I'm from, I actually got um, a job at this. It kind of fell into my lap, and we were. It was really serendipitous in that it was a job where I got to lead the policy department. But I also got to have a hand in our ocean acceleration accelerator, helping companies accelerate ocean innovation solutions. Uh, one of those companies happened to be Finless Foods. And because I have an uncanny amount of knowledge about bluefin tuna, I was helping them think through the policy implications, what kind of hire you would need to make because of my law background and experience in the US government, helping them think through the regulatory lens. And I was persuaded by some very visionary mentors of mine uh, to move over to Finless. And so I've been there now for two and a half, maybe plus years, which feels so much longer than it sounds. And I have moved into the chief strategy officer role in maybe a year and a half ago, but probably sooner than longer than that in, in actual wearing the hats. And so now my role um, actually is like an umbrella role of many of the functions on the business side of the company. So I lead on communications, marketing, um, regulatory policy, which we separate out for a lot of reasons and impact, which is largely how do we as a mission driven company, make sure that we make the mission we set out to make. And so I guess to follow on the, what does my day to day look like? It literally never is the same. And it's literally never what I think it's going to be at 9 a.m. when I start. Uh, and so by the end of the day, I've learned you know, 20 new things that I never expected. Uh, and I usually have 20 questions that I don't yet know how to resolve. So, um, so it's definitely- But you're not an expert in all those areas. <laughs> you're not HR and marketing. It's, I mean, it's, that's a lot. That's a lot of responsibility on your shoulders. So I do have a question and you were talking about Finless Foods being a mission-driven organization. Can you explain a little bit of, about the mission of Finless Foods and, and what it, exactly it is? Yeah. Well, the soundbite is to create a future for seafood where the ocean thrives. That is really broad, but I, I want to call that out because I think our vision is even broader than Finless. It's to have a world where folks consume the dishes they love and are still able to eat the seafood dishes that they've grown up eating, but that the ocean is still able to thrive and, and have healthy ecosystems. Um, what does that really mean? If you boil it down, you know, outside of the you know larger like vision talk, our founders are really passionate about trying to think of new ways for us to consume and think of seafood. And they had learned of this technology, which is now becoming the field of cellular agriculture, which is how can you make seafood products or it's a field. So meat, poultry, depending on the company, 
a different way, basically where you can take cells and grow them out to become meat products, but without having to continually harvest from an animal source. That is the most small, that is the quickest description. So we, we can go into it more later. But the reason I wanted to say that is they had learned of this technology and wondered why apply this only to horseshoe crabs, for example, um, with regards to pharmaceuticals, why can we not apply this to the seafood that we eat every day? And I think for them, tuna came to mind first and foremost, because not only do folks love to eat tuna, um, that's why we are where we are. Of the sea. Yeah. But at the same time, um, especially, you know, even a few years ago, there was a lot of media buzz about the plight of the bluefin tuna. And the fact that it's so demanded, it's probably, you can see the highest price points per fish. And I think people to this day would be astounded to know what a fish sells for. Um, at the same time, there was talks about putting them on endangered species lists and how could, how are there other ways we can address this? And so they decided to found Finless to take the field of cellular agriculture, try to apply it to seafood and specifically start with bluefin tuna. And along that journey, which I was part of, this was part of the journey since I've started, we had stumbled into a plant-based pokey style tuna product and really had a heart to heart internally of whether we'd commercialize that as well, given that there's so much attention and interest by consumers to expand plant-based you know, diets in their, in their everyday choices. And so we decided to also um, bring a plant-based product to market, which means now we think of ourselves a little bit more as an alternative seafood company, not just a cell cultured seafood company, but one that just is trying to find alternatives to bring to the market to diversify the way we eat seafood and take pressure off the ocean. That's really interesting. So as an alternative seafood company, there must be so many different hurdles and unknowns going through the process um, of just getting your, your products to market, really. Yeah, it's like a Venn diagram with like seven circles. <laughs> yeah. You're trying to find that sweet spot in the middle. I mean, because there's the business side things you're thinking through, which is like, what's the market fit? What species do Americans like to eat? What species would they be willing to eat as an, as an alternative, not just a wild caught option? Um, what would be the price points? Speaking of some price parity questions and, and what would be the journey to get there? Then you have the regulatory side, which is dependent on the plant and cell. It's actually quite, quite different. Um, and then it depends on the geography. So like the US regulatory system is quite different than Japan or China and they're all different. So there's a lot of circles that you're thinking through to find that center spot, which is this is going to be our first or second product to market. It's the plant-based tuna that's pokey style. And it's the cell cultured bluefin tuna sashimi, both focused on going to market first in the United States. Do you find that there's like consumer education piece to introducing the products to market? Like, you know, you hear a lot of like, oh, non-GMO certified. Do you find yourself having to just like educate consumers on the distinction of those types of concepts? A hundred thousand percent um, on both. I think they're very different journeys on plant versus cell. And I think the journeys are not only um, product specific or company specific, but it's actually industry wide. So for example, on the plant side, I think there's a lot more familiarization and interest and folks are actually demanding these products and looking for them. So there's actually a huge white space in the plant-based seafood alternatives. And so they're actually it's, it's more of a getting, getting the word out on Finless and our product to the right audiences who are already looking for this and finding distribution, et cetera. On the sell side, I think it's demystifying what the industry is and even breaking through to consumers early and often, again, using those words, that this industry even exists, this technology is even being explored, what the power of it could be. And I think demystifying it so that you don't get to the place where, for example, GMO might've gotten to in the consumer landscape where there's strong opinions, there may be loosely held or there may be loosely held based on not very much understanding uh, and they're very complex concepts. And so it's become a little bit of a fraught debate 
depending not only in the US, but globally. And so I think trying to learn from other novel technologies and say, how do we do a better job at consumer education earlier and often uh, before even the products are, are close to or even on market? Yeah. And, and speaking of innovation, and we're talking about, you know, introducing new products to market that, that perhaps the general population is not as familiar with. I'm curious, Hannah, if you have worked with other clients that um, are using innovation to make changes in the marketplace, and if you've seen sort of anything similar with the clients and industries that you're working with. Yeah, I think probably one of the biggest uh, maybe market disruptors or fields of innovation is in the digital health space, um, both from a product perspective and even from a regulatory perspective, because it's really merging. You, you really start to see tech and health like merge in ways that really didn't get merged even like 10 years ago. Using tech as a diagnostic tool or a treatment tool, um, it, once you get into the definition of a drug or device, you're treating, curing, diagnosing disease, um, and just the technologies that, um, are being developed to, um, you know, really transform, um, you know, our health and our lives uh, in terms of, of what can be done is is really fascinating. And I think the FDA tries to keep up with innovation, um, but it's all moving super fast. <laughs> and yeah. so, um, you know, it, it it tries to partner with industry and you know not be a roadblock, but also you know it does want to ensure. The safety of our communities as well. So there's a bit of a push and a pull on that front. But um, you know, I think that is a challenge that uh any industry faces, whether drug device, food, um, when you're in a regulated space where the innovation is just happening so quickly. Um, and you've got to, you know, also be mindful of the regulatory landscape and how do you navigate a regulatory landscape that maybe isn't quite up to where the technology is, is always. Mm -hmm. A challenge for everybody. Yeah. And this is a perfect segue into my next question. And it's really directed to both of you because I have not the slightest idea what the regulatory landscape actually looks like. Like if I want to bring a product to market, um, can you explain perhaps even at a high level for our listeners, what the process is for approval for, from the FDA and other regulatory bodies? Um, and Perhaps Shannon, you could jump in while Hannah is talking too, and talk about you know um, how some of those processes may differ for plant and cell cultured products. Sure. So at a, I can I can start and definitely don't need to be um, uh, the only one chiming in here. So um, yeah, I think you have to first identify what the product is. So are you a food? Are you a drug? Are you a device? Um, or are you none of those things? Um, and I think that's where I get a lot of questions is like, well, am I a dietary supplement or am I a food? Am I, you know, when you talk about digital health, the FDA has all these guidance documents on software as a medical device. And there's actually, I'm getting a little in the weeds here, but there's like three different <laughs> uh, sort of buckets. You can be not regulated and you can be not a device and not regulated. There's this like gray area of you are a device, but you're low risk. And so we're going to exercise enforcement discretion and not make you go through pre-market review. Or are you a device that really does need to go through pre-market review? And so that sort of landscape is can be pretty murky. And you're you know basically trying to read these dense guidance documents and use your best judgment <laughs> to figure out where um, you know where the product falls. So I think in the first instance is are you, a, are you a regulated product? Um, if you are a regulated product, um, you know, understanding, you know, sometimes there's combination products or drug, you know, combo drug device products um, and working with the agency to figure out, you know, who's going to uh, have over, you know, primary oversight over the product. Um, I, I think for drugs and devices, it's really the FDA that's going to regulate the product. Um, sometimes, FTC can, you know, from a consumer standpoint, if there's really, you know, particularly on the, you know, promotion advertising side of things, um, they might get involved. But if you're dealing like with labeling, a device, you're talking about like claims, labeling or like, like more even like TV ads, um, okay. social media ads, like 
direct consumer interaction is where you might see some FTC involvement. If there's like, if you're out there saying your hand sanitizer is going to cure COVID, you might get something from the FTC or something. But, um, you know, if you're out there on Instagram saying that or something. Um, but um, yeah, so, you know, drugs and devices, I really think are primarily regulated by the FDA, I think, and Shannon can speak to this probably much better than I can, but, you know, on the food side, you do get some multi-agency you know, review and oversight, depending on what the product is. So particularly like meats, eggs, poultry, fish, um, you might get some dual agency <laughs> review and oversight, which can definitely make things a lot more complicated. So I think figuring out what what your product is and where it falls um, is like a key step. And it's not always an easy step. Um, I'd actually even yeah. say that as more as more and more innovation comes up, those boxes are are not so clean, clear cut. And that's why I think those gray areas exist where, for example, even for cellular technologies, we, we see this a lot that, you know, you, you're a food, but you may use pharmaceutical um, or, or practices and science that were traditionally used on a pharmaceutical side. And you have this question, is a pharmaceutical standard applying? Is a food standard applying? Mm -hmm. um, even the, the cross-pollination of talent in these companies largely gets pulled from biotech and from pharmaceutical companies or et cetera. And so that's a big learning curve, even within companies to evolve from pharmaceutical or biotech practices to food and understanding where that line falls. And so I don't, um, I, I actually think that we're going to see more and more gray in between these boxes. That's the nature of policy and law, right? Like you try and for simplicity purposes, create black letter or a box, but in practice that only works for clear cut cases. And right. the more evolved things get, the more you have to then have this exercise of making the case of which box you fit in. And, mm -hmm. um, and a lot of it is, is thinking through and, and weeding through the gray area. So I think that that's pretty, pretty common. And I think is going to be a like living and breathing challenge as we move forward. And it's probably only going to become more a challenge with innovation because the traditional boxes we've used are going to be questioned. I might caveat a little bit what I just said too, but um, it's not necessarily just the product that you would need to, you know, identify in terms of like where it fits within being regulated. Like there are some products that can have dual or multi um, designations. And I, the example I use with a lot of clients is fish oil. Um, like in one instance, it's a food. Um, and in another instance, it can be a dietary supplement. I mean, I think that's a pretty common, you know, like dietary supplement that people buy from Whole Foods or wherever. Um, and in some instances there is, you know, it is a drug, like there is a um, indication for official, it, a company has gone and Benefits. gotten, yeah. Mm -hmm. um, it's the use and case. so it really, it comes down to like the intended use of the product, mm -hmm. and what you're intending it, how, how you're intending it to be used and what you're saying, what claims you're making about the product. So it's not necessarily just identifying where your product falls within, you know, the regulatory classification, regulated or not. It is also looking at the intended use of it and you know, maybe there's multiple uses and, and you do have to be careful um, with those types of products. Um, not sure just the products, it's even the component ingredients. That's a huge yeah. part of the work we're always analyzing is, is the thing you want to use, how is it regulated for the intended use? Yeah. And if it's not spoken on for the intended use, then what are the next steps and, and what are the pathways? So it's always like those, um, those little books you read when you're a kid where it's like, if this go to chapter two, if this go to Choose chapter your own five, adventure. <laughs> <laughs> and you're always trying to figure out what, what chapter you're being, you know, bounced to next to, to figure out what's the next step of unlocking what we need to do. And so, um, anyway, I imagine I that would be a very lengthy said. process if there's not really a clear cut straightaway answer. And it, it is sort of gray. I imagine it would take a very long time then to get the regulatory approvals that you need. Well, so this is what was so fascinating and, and zero. <laughs> Being, and this is not, this is being honest, 0% of me, if you asked me even three years ago, would have thought that I would have worked in anything with FDA regulatory. 
<laughs> or food, like food law or pharmaceutical. I'd like, like literally no, no, you know, like no part of my mind was on that as an interest. Um, but what was interesting to me when I moved over to Finless was that um, most of the time you have industries that come to be and then you figure out how to regulate them. Um, and that happens more often than not. Like you're, something's evolving, like Hannah's point, you know, the government can't always keep up. So something's evolving and then you're like, okay, how do we, what do we do here? Or maybe they're happening in parallel path. This situation was one where this industry has been um, invested in, talked about, there's been a lot of academic research in, but there, the actual industry component was just growing so quickly from like 2015, arguably even 2017 when, when Finless was founded, there were still very few companies. And so the regulators in many ways were ahead of the industry growth thinking like, how do we regulate this industry? And so it's a unique opportunity to build the regulatory pathway while you're building the industry and try and do, you know, you don't have this, this opportunity often to try and do the, the best thing before you're having to fix something. And so it was really interesting to me to be able to play this thought leadership role as a company, but we're also part of an industry association and also our industry association works with those globally. And so how do we shape a regulatory pathway that does all the thing that helps the agencies walk that dual line that Hannah was mentioning. We want our products to be seen as safe. If the products aren't seen as having gone through rigorous due process and diligence that in pre-market review, then folks won't be open to consuming them. And from a mission perspective, if no one's eating them or if no one's even considering the opportunity to switch out a, a traditionally produced meat product for these products, then you don't make the global environmental impact anyway. Right. And so we're super in that, like, this needs to be seen as a trusted industry. At the same time, as we know, with regulatory ecosystems and government policies, they don't always foster innovations. And so trying to work with the agencies early to say, how can we make sure that we create fair and, like, fair and sensical regulatory pathways that mean that these industries can get to market and not in 50 years because the environmental challenges we have are today. And we don't have a huge window for climate change to, to make the crucial steps we have to make. So it's been really interesting working with the agencies in a consultative process as they're trying to build the regulatory pathways. And so anyway, just to say that- and So that's I, when you're putting on both of your hats, your policy hat and your regulatory hat as you're educating the regulatory agencies about your product and the innovation that's coming, not only with your product, but several other companies, I'm sure that have something similar in the works hundred um, percent, and, and also and all, trying to forge a path forward. hundred percent. And the reason yeah. we also keep regulatory and policies, not separate, but, you know, I call them out separately because there's actually a huge amount of work in government relations, mm -hmm. even just educating Capitol Hill on what this technology is when other governments are investing a lot of money and time and effort into this industry, like Singapore and the Netherlands just put, you know, there's been millions of euros and millions of um, dollars put into this industry and from governments. And so trying to educate Capitol Hill that like for American competitiveness, you know, there's many, the most, the most number of most well-funded companies in the U S and how do we make sure that we're staying competitive or mm -hmm. having conversations with DC based think tanks around the future of food safety and also with folks that are working on the future of food and what the ecosystem looks like for food security and what does it look like for climate change resiliency and talking to them about the, the opportunity these technologies play in, in solving some of those questions. So there's no shortage of work, <laughs> but it's definitely very separate in, in some ways of what you, how you would educate a policymaker versus what the, the level of technical conversations you'd have with the regulatory body. Where is Finless Food in the regulatory process right now? Uh, and Hannah, please just ever interrupt if I'm saying something that's way mm -hmm. out to left field. Because... No, you're, I'm fascinated. <laughs> Keep going. <laughs> I know, this is really... I'm, again, not, I always say this, like, I am not a food lawyer. Like, that's not my specialty. <laughs> I work with a lot of very smart food lawyers. And I, I learn enough to be able to be dangerous, but it's it's not like I grew up in this space as a lawyer. Um, I uh, where's Finless? Sorry, I was distracted. In my own thought. Finless 
um, already has launching and launched its plant-based tuna product, which is a poke style. We launched at the National Restaurant Association show in May in Chicago, which is, you know, I don't know where everyone who's who's who and food goes from food service. We are now in the product, the process of running, um, we are in the process of rolling the product out. So for example, we already have distribution, but you also need to continue to build distribution channels, roll that out to locations and chains and operators, et cetera, all that work stream. That product is different in that it largely follows the grass paradigm. So it, it's not the same as needing pre-market safety review. A lot can be, we could probably have a whole podcast around grass and, and that and questions there. Um, on the cell cultured side, we're in regulatory review with the food and with FDA. You all know what FDA is. I don't need to, to spell it out. And um, the, the FDA has been evolved, has been evolving this regulatory pathway for cell for the cellular ag space. So there's many companies in regulatory review with FDA right now. And largely it's being treated as a consultative iterative process, similar to what was done with the new plant varieties. And so basically there will be a dossier submitted and we all know that, and we have a general understanding from, from, from past um, precedent of what those chapter headings will be and what, what the scientific data needs to look like. But it's largely also an iterative Q and A where we have meetings with the FDA and sort of say, well, there's this precedent, this precedent, how do you see this applying to us, right? Because like I said, it's, it's gray and they're trying to figure out how will they have a regulatory pathway for this brand new industry? The only other government that one could argue is maybe a little, I wouldn't even say more advanced, but taking a similar but slightly different approach is, um, is Singapore. The Singapore Food Authority, SFA, has put out a guidance document on this industry already that basically spells out many of the Q&A that, that probably individual companies have been having with the agency and that we're you know, currently having with FDA. And, um, and so that guidance document exists, it's searchable, you can find it. It's sort of, if you wanna use the word like the Bible for the moment. That said, SFA is also doing consultative processes where companies can come and, and do the similar kind of iterative dialogue that, you, that we are with the FDA. And, and so they, they basically give the disclaimer that their guidance can and likely will be updated as they continue to learn more from the companies because we're the first movers. And so they're also learning from us on the ground, like what really is the science looking like? What are the products going to look like? What questions are arising? So we can start thinking about how to answer them from a safety perspective. So in that sense, there's a very respected, we're industry and these are the agencies and they are here to ensure that we have rigorous uh, pre-market safety review. At the same time, it's a conversation because we're learning together in many ways. Um, and so that's where we are. And that's a little bit of an explanation to say why I can't tell you if like we're in step three out of five, because mm -hmm. that's not even that formalized yet. Understood. Gotcha. And I'm just thinking, Hannah, with some of your uh, digital health clients too, are they facing similar hurdles and that there's, you know, a lot of gray space or similar hurdles in getting FDA approval? Um, I think there are some parallels. I think it seems like the um, cell culture space is more defined. Like I know it's newer, but it seems like there is more agency dialogue. Um, you know, in the digital health space, you, know, you had the 21st Century Cures Act, which um, exempted certain types of devices, certain types of products from the definition of a medical device. And then the FDA issued these draft guidance documents that are super long. And, you know, sometimes it's really just digging through those guidance documents and going through examples and trying to figure out where you fall within, you know, how would the FDA bucket you? Um, you know, some companies can file what's called a 513G submission to get, um, you can get some agency feedback on how your products would be classified. But um, I, I think there tends to be a little bit less dialogue with the agency in terms of like figuring out, the, are you even regulated? And if you are if you, if you are a regulated product that needs pre-market review, you, you go through the 510K or PMA process, which is a more established, just that, you know, those processes have been around for much longer. 
-hmm. you know, it's, it's so interesting to hear Shannon talk about the, you know, the dialogue that in the consultative process that the company is going through on the cell culture products, I contrast that with something like the CBD space, which is just kind of like a free fall in some ways. Um, you know, there's just this gridlock <laughs> where, um, you know, technically, you know, the FDA says that the, you know, the use of CBD can't be, or that CBD can't be used in dietary supplements because it's already been approved uh, for use in, in a drug. And so under these technical FDA rules, you know, you can't use CBD as a supplement, but it's being used uh, in the market. And it's just kind of like being done. And, you know, there was supposed to be some guidance document that that the FDA was going to issue. And then you had the administration change and that, from what I understand that document was drafted, but it never got released. And so it's kind of back to square one. And it's just trying to figure out if like Congress is going to pass a law to regulate CBD and dietary supplements, or it's just going to be status quo. But it, you know, it's a stark contrast, I think, where the agency, you know, I'm not in the weeds on cell culture, but it seems like they are much more engaged in trying to keep up with industry and, and keep up with the innovation, whereas the CBD space seemed to just kind of explode and they didn't keep up with it. And now it's just, it is, like I said, it's a bit of a free-for-all and almost like um, they've, they've lost control. I, <laughs> yeah. yeah I think it would benefit from some clarity from some, from some part of the government. <laughs> yeah. And I don't even want, I mean, to take credit because I, well, first of all, yes, we're very grateful. And I think we make a point to say that when investors ask or when we're speaking to reps at Capitol Hill, that we are very grateful that the agency is actively working with us, you know, and I think we make that point because investors will be like, why are they so slow? Like, are they not taking this seriously? Is it not a priority? And, and I'm always the first to say like, it could be slower, you know, uh, <laughs> how, be grateful. Long, how long is the process generally? We can only surmise in that yeah. it hasn't, there's been no approval yet in the US. And so we can have best guesses of what we've been said, like from the time of submission of a complete document, you can have a rough like 12 months. And, but they'll caveat that, well, the, as you know, more than I do, the agency is very hesitant to give those, those answers because they, they're learning as they're going. They don't want to they don't, it's like insurance, right? You don't want, the insurance policy is to not, not make the commitment and make sure that you're only sharing what you feel like you can, you know, back up. And I think, so there's been some looseness of, of giving a date that said, I think again, time of submission is different than the consultative process because you're going through the consultative process to be able to make sure that you have a final submission with many of your questions and their questions already answered. And so I think there have been companies that have been going through this for a while with the FDA. Have, it's not like we've just started. And so I always like to point out when folks, that, you know, when I say this and they read in they, between the lines, oh, you're saying 10, 15 years. No, I'm not saying that. I do think that you will see approvals in the shorter than longer term. But I can't tell you, and I, and I always trying to point out to folks when I'm just blindly guessing, I don't think it serves anyone for me to blindly guess. And if someone's asking me and that's what they're asking me to do, I just caveat, like, just so you know, this is a blind guess. Yeah. I don't think any of, can, any of, any one of us can say six months, 12 months, 15 months, but I know that there are, there are companies who are very far along in the consultative process. Mm -hmm. And so it's really, I think a matter of these are the first cases it's a case of first impression of what will be the first company that gets approval and how long that process took and so but it still takes a while so hannah i just wanted to ask you um one more question to close this out what do you see on the horizon in the regulatory space um when it comes to everything like this when it comes to fda when it comes to um you know innovative companies coming to market what do you see in the future? Uh, I think in the near term, like things I'm watching, um, there's currently some legislation pending. It's called valid legislation, and it would potentially um, sort of re, uh, what's the right word, um, restructure how the FDA um, 
exercises oversight over in vitro diagnostics. I think they're calling them like in vitro clinical tests, and it would encompass both um, kind of the traditional IVDs as well as laboratory developed tests. And so for the potential for laboratory developed tests to be more closely regulated, I think would be a, a very big shift in terms of how um, clinical labs are, are regulated right now. And I'm sure there would be, there will be, if that legislation goes past, that will be, um, you know, a, a big, a big shift and a lot of work and you'll hear a lot about it. Um, there is some also potential for cosmetics, I think, to be more closely regulated by the FDA. Pretty, you know, it is the Food, Drug, and Cosmetic Act. And, mm. you know, to date, you know, cosmetics, you know, there are some CGMP manufacturing requirements, but overall, you know, cosmetics don't need to go through approval and they're not, they're, they're not like, they're not listed in the way drugs or devices are. So, mm. um, you know, that could be a big, a big change. Um, and I, I, I think there's lessons to be learned if, if, you know, it's an innovative product or an innovative industry, kind of taking a, a look at places where the FDA has kept up with the innovation and places where the FDA hasn't done as much keeping up, so to speak, with the innovation and, and what kind of lessons can, can be learned. I think, um, you know, if, if you find yourself in, an, in a space that is new and you don't think the FDA is really covering it yet, um, you know, trying to trying to get an assessment of of how how you can work with the agency to um, keep the agency abreast of, of what you're doing, and so you don't end up in these kind of free for alls where it's it's really unclear. So, Shannon, I saw that Finless Foods announced the closing of its Series B financing funding uh, back in March, which is very exciting. Um, I I saw in the press release that brings your total capital raised to about 48 million since 2017, and it's probably just continued to go up from there, which is very impressive. Um, so I'm curious to hear from you. What do you see as the future of Finless Foods? Um, I think what's what's next is to continue to grow. We have built our pilot facility and we've launched our plant-based product in May, and so watching that roll out is going to be phenomenal and, and a testament to all the hard work that's gone into it. And I think on the cell, the cell culture side, like I mentioned, building out the pilot facility was a huge step for us. And we're undergoing regulatory approval now and parallel packing, parallel pathing both in the United States and in Singapore. And so all the, the hard work is going into getting approval for our cell culture at Bluefin Tuna um, to bring that to market. And last question for you, what's the one thing that you hope our audience takes away from today's episode? I think there's a lot of really smart, talented people. I think as you can hear from Shannon speaking, just really working hard to, you know, make positive change in in our communities and our world. And um I I I I personally am just really it's been really exciting to listen to Shannon speak today. Um and I think, you know, finding something that you're passionate about in terms of your job um, and what gets you out of bed in the morning. You know, I think if you like what you're doing or if you're, you know, not every part of your day will be necessarily easy or fun, but if you can overall be like excited about the work you're doing, um, you know, I think that that keeps you going and keeps you from getting burned out. Um, you know, whereas if you're just chugging along because you think this will pay the bills, you know, it, it, it's a harder, harder ask to make of yourself in the long term. Right. So um, I never thought I would be a, a, like a FDA lawyer. That was not what I envisioned. It just wasn't even something I knew about when I was a kid. <laughs> but, um, you know, you can, I, you know, I would say be open to, to things and subject areas uh, as you continue to progress through your career. Thank you so much. I just really want to switch gears here because yeah. at the end of each episode, I like to um, ask something uh, that entre entrepreneurial women across industries can add to their toolkit. And so today's question is, what makes you feel inspired or your best self? Yeah, definitely. I'm glad you asked this because especially in the impact space as well, burnout is a very real thing. And we we talk a lot about sort of martyrdom syndrome, where you feel like it's not only acceptable, but that you should put yourself second or third because the challenges you're trying to solve are so urgent and so important and bigger than yourself. Um, so I'm glad that you, you, you call this out. 
For me, it's personally, which is probably cliche as well, taking time to get into nature, um, particularly as close as I possibly can to the coast or to the ocean, even better if I get to be on the ocean or in the ocean. So for example, every weekend I'm generally doing a coastal hike or going to the beach or riding my bike on a beach, like a coastal path, because it helps me not only kind of just slow down for a moment and connect with myself and feel what I'm actually feeling. What are, or, you know, what are my value shifts connect with kind of how I felt the week went or, you know, how I handled things, but also it helps me really open my creative mind. So sometimes while you want to run at the problem, you, you need to take a step back. And often at the end of a bike ride is when I'll be like, that's how I need to unlock that problem. So mm -hmm. I think it's essential for me for work life, but also just personally. And, um, for example, I was at the UN ocean conference in Portugal and I stayed a few days after and went on a boat ride um, and saw dolphins and saw the coast and saw fish. I saw wild bluefin tuna, which was really special. Um, thank you to the universe. And I think I got back and felt more inspired than I had in six months. So yeah. sometimes that, you know, hour, two hours, two days is actually so worth it in terms of what, what it brings you to recharge. Definitely. Yep. Well, Hannah and Shannon, I wanted to thank you both for joining me and sharing your insights on today's episode of She Talks Law. If you're listening and enjoyed our conversation, subscribe to our show on Spotify or Apple Podcasts. We want to hear from you. So like and follow She Talks Law on Instagram and Facebook and email your comments and topic suggestions to shetalkslaw at nixonpeabody.com. And finally, the views expressed on this podcast do not reflect the views of Nixon Peabody and should not be construed as legal advice. The podcast is not intended to create a lawyer-client relationship and listeners should not act upon anything expressed by presenters without seeking professional counsel. This podcast may constitute attorney advertising under various state ethics rules, and we note prior results do not guarantee a similar outcome. Thanks, everyone.